We turn now to this evening's scripture lesson, which is in the letter to the Hebrews, in chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Here, the author of the letter tells us what we have come to in Christ Jesus. This uh, covenant in which we stand, able to enter into the heavenly presence of the Lord indeed. So we read now, I call you to attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word, as it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and is therefore inerrant. So we read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now since the reading of God's holy word for us at this time, may we briefly pray. Lord, we do seek you now in your word, asking that you would grant that as we consider the things taught in your word and brought out of it and summarized in our confessional documents that that we would indeed grow in our love for you by growing in our knowledge of you. And we pray that as we consider that you have condescended to speak to us in covenant, that we would love you for it and grow in our understanding of these covenants whereby you have related to mankind. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we covered the doctrine of the fall of mankind into sin and into this state of total depravity. Not, we say, utter depravity, so that everything about us is absolutely sinful, But uh, we recognized that the scriptures teach that we are inherently sinful to such a degree that there is nothing about us that is untouched by sin. And the knowledge of that is a fearful thing. As I mentioned last week, what a desperate position that leaves us in. If everything I think, feel, and say, and do has something sinful about it. That means if I try to earn God's favor, even the best of my works, even if I look at God's word and I say, see, he says, this is a good thing to do, and I do that thing, well, 
It has something about it. I bring along with me something about that action that is sinful. So there's something about it that brings more wrath and judgment on me for my sin than if I hadn't have done it. Even a good thing. Even something that's objectively good. But of course, if I refuse to do the objectively good thing, then that also rightly brings God's judgment upon me. So I am hopeless, and this is all of our situation. This this isn't just me, this is all of us. We're hopeless if we depend on our own righteousness. That's why Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're supposed to be dressed in resplendent white robes, right, to approach the Lord and... Trying to put on our own righteousness to approach the Lord is like dressing in filthy rags to go and see the king. But God has not left us without hope. Yes, on our own we would be hopeless. But God did not leave us without hope. When we understand, on the one hand, how holy and pure and righteous God is, which we saw when we studied the Ten Commandments, and we've seen that already in uh, this confession and in the scriptures that... The confession is pointing to or is is drawing from. When we see how holy and righteous and pure God is on the one hand and how depraved we are, there's a danger that we might become paralyzed, so to speak. Fearful of doing anything lest we bring more wrath upon ourselves. But that's where we rely on God's covenant promises. And that's what we're going to talk about some tonight. As a faithful exposition of what the Bible teaches, the Westminster Confession in the seventh chapter teaches about the importance of covenants. A covenant is a sacred agreement between two or more parties. And, and the covenant usually calls upon a God, and if it's it's a if the parties know the true Lord, then they're going to call upon the true God as witness and as the binder of the agreement. And oftentimes in the ancient world, <coughs> covenants were uh, made between kings, for example. <coughs> Excuse me. And those covenants were not, those kings were not necessarily of equal status. One was often the superior in dictating the terms of the covenant. And that's what we see when God makes covenants with man. He's the dictator of the terms of the covenant because of his superior status. But nevertheless, God has chosen, we see, to relate to mankind through covenants. Throughout Scripture, we see that the Lord is a covenant-making God. The Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes this by saying, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So there we see that, that uh, there is a distance between God who is infinite and the creature who is finite. And so all reasonable creatures, that would basically be angels and men, right? angels and mankind, uh, owe obedience to him. But we could have no fruition, no fruits that come out of that, and no true relationship with the Lord, except that he would in some way make himself known to us. 
So because we are fallen and suppress the truth and unrighteousness, that adds a greater degree of the distance between us. We're willfully blind to who God is because of our fallenness. And even if we acknowledge the evidence that we have a creator, we can't really know much about him because he's infinite and we're finite. We're confined in space and time and he's not. Even before the fall, God was so far beyond human comprehension that on their own, Adam and Eve, they could have discerned some things about God, but they couldn't really truly have known God in any meaningful sense, except that God condescended to come to them. Think about his habit of walking with them, as it were, manifesting in the way they can, they can see, appearing to them, and walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. That is evening time. So they would have their days to tend the garden, which obviously was not toilsome until after the fall. They were kicked out of that garden, but they had to toil. But they they were put to work. Work is a creation ordinance. It's not something that uh, that is going to be absent when we're in the world to come. But it will be uh, delightful work, not wearisome work. But they, they labored. Adam was put in the garden to tend it, and he would go about his business through the day, and then the Lord would walk with him at the close of that day. Yet we see repeatedly in Scripture that though knowledge of him is really beyond our capability, he wants us to know him. And when I say beyond our capability, that is beyond our capability on our own. It takes his action. In fact, that's the definition that Jesus gives for eternal life in John 17, 3, when he's praying his great high priestly prayer. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. So knowing God is very important. And contrary to what some schools of theology would say, it isn't impossible. It would be impossible on our part, but it's not impossible for God to reveal himself to us in a way that is both accurate and that we understand. So as the confession puts it, God condescends. That is, he comes down to be with us. Condescending is a term that that, uh, tends to have a negative connotation in our culture. We don't want another adult to speak to us in a condescending tone, right? That's undignified, right? That, that uh, makes us feel belittled. But it literally just means to come down with, to descend, to be with. And God comes down with us to speak to us in a way that we can understand. You and I know that when we really want to speak clearly to a child... What do you do? Well, you speak in terms that you know that child can understand. You don't have to necessarily dumb things down because children are capable of of grasping more than we often give them credit for. But you really want to communicate clearly to a little one, like my two little two-year-olds. What do you do? Well, you, you might kneel down, look her in the eye. You condescend, don't you? And you speak to her in terms that you know are familiar to her as opposed to terms that go way above her head. 
you speak to them at their level. That's what God does with us. Yes, God has an infinite mind that we can't fully comprehend. We never will be able to. But being infinite in intelligence, he's quite capable of figuring out ways to speak to us that are perfectly accurate. One uh, comparison I heard once was that somebody said, well, uh, think about when your little toddler asks you where babies come from. You don't have to give a whole biological lecture on how that works, but uh, if you tell the child, well, the stork brought you, well, that's not true, right? And that's not what God does. God doesn't give us the equivalent, the theological equivalent of telling us the stork brought us, right? Uh, But he does something like saying, well, when a man and a woman get married, there's the mommy and daddy love one another, and then the baby grows in mommy's tummy, and, and then the baby's born. You give little simple things that, are, uh, that the child is capable of understanding and that are appropriate for their level of understanding. And that's sort of what God does with us, and he condescends. And he does that especially by covenant. That's something we can understand. You know, that's when he made his covenant with Abraham, and he had Abraham... Uh, cut those animals in two and walk, but he would have walked ordinarily between them, though God put Abraham to sleep and he appeared. And, uh, and in Abraham's dream, the Lord went between the pieces, which is a way of saying that he was going to take the punishment uh, if he didn't keep the covenant, which he wouldn't break. But even if Abraham didn't keep the covenant, it would be God who took who bore the punishment. But when God did that, they were in Genesis 15. He was doing something that was already familiar to Abraham. Abraham had probably seen kings do this very kind of thing. It was certainly something he would have heard about. So God was speaking to Abraham in terms that Abraham could understand. Covenants. Now in the Bible, there are lots of different covenants. But most of them are what we might call a sub-covenant, if you will. A smaller covenant that falls under the heading of a bigger covenant, a bigger umbrella that's over many sub-covenants. There are really, in the Bible, two basic covenants. And some even argue one. I'll get to that in a minute here. But we all probably know this well. The first is called the covenant of works. We read about its establishment in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man, saying... You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The confession explains, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, by the way that's sometimes called the covenant of life for that reason, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So you can see why it's called the covenant of works. It was contingent on mankind's behavior. If man obeyed perfectly, he would live forever. If he disobeyed, he would die. We saw last week, and indeed we, each of us every day in our lives, uh, see the consequences of this, that, that Adam and we in him disobeyed. So the confession goes on. 
Man by his fall having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace. And here's where I'll stop and say that sometimes people will, theologians will point out, in one sense there are really just one covenant. There's the covenant of works, but we can't keep it for ourselves anymore. And so Jesus has to keep it for us. And because we don't keep it for ourselves, but the Lord has come to be one of us and has kept it in our place, then that is grace from our perspective. But uh, it's appropriate to consider those then from our point of view as two separate covenants. There's the covenant of works, but then there's also this covenant of grace. So man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the confession says, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, so not by their own works, but by someone else's. The confession says, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. So we'll talk more in the future about election. <clears throat> but there, the that's understood to be behind what's being said here, that God has elected some for eternal life. And those whom he's elected for eternal life, he comes to in the person of the Holy Spirit and makes them willing and able to believe. The second covenant, then, is called a covenant of grace. We read of it first, really, in Genesis 3.15, when God promises the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. It's summarized frequently in John 3.16. People frequently quote, I should say. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. By nature, since we are now totally depraved since the fall, we we don't want God for who he really is. But the Holy Spirit comes to God's elect and he changes their hearts changes their wills so that we both desire the true God for who he really is and are able to trust in his promises. It makes us willing and able to believe. The result is that we become co-heirs with Christ in his kingdom and that he bequeaths to us, as it were, a share in his inheritance. We all know uh, in Human experience, here's again where God, by covenant, is relating to us things that we understand. We all understand the concept of a last will and testament. It's a type of contract, a covenant, whereby witnesses are promising, you know, if I were to write a last will and testament, and there would be witnesses to sign it, a lawyer might draw it up for me, or to make sure it'll all fit the law. It can't be contested. But the writer of the will is called a testator. And that would be me in the case if it's my will. And there would be witnesses who would be essentially promising me that, okay, though you won't be around, Daniel, you'll be dead. You'll be gone from this earth. But we will make sure, as, as much as we can legally do, that your will with your property, that, your, that what you want to happen with your things will happen with them. They will carry out his will for the disposal of his property. 
That's why we refer to the Old and New Covenants, which are both under the covenant of grace, as the Old and New Testaments, quite often. The Confession puts it this way, this covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of Testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Christ, by dying for us, bequeathed us blessings. Now, every other covenant in Scripture from the fall onwards falls under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. There are lots of covenants that we find in Scripture. These covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, with Israel through Moses, with David, the new covenant in Christ, each have their own expressions and ceremonies whereby the covenant of grace is shown. But they're all under the covenant of grace. For example, God's grace is shown in the Mosaic covenant through the sacrificial system, in which God accepts the death of the substitute, a lamb or a goat or a bull, for the sins of the people. It's it's shown through all of the laws of, of cleanliness, of ritual cleanness. It was shown in the Abrahamic covenant through the sign of circumcision, which really points to a change of heart. As Moses tells Israel, be circumcised in your heart. Same change of heart to which baptism now points. All the ceremonial laws of the covenants before Christ came into the world were simply types and shadows pointing to him, as Colossians 2 tells us. That these are things that are pointing to who Jesus really is and what he was going to fulfill. So the confession says the covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all four signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. So in other words, the the confession there correctly says, people in the Old Testament weren't saved by killing bulls and goats and lambs. But obedient believers did those things because they knew they pointed towards something that would save them. God giving his own lamb. The fulfillment of Abraham's statement that God will provide his own lamb for the burnt offering. So even before Christ came, (coughs) pardon me, so even before Christ came, salvation was by faith in him. No, they wouldn't have known the name of Jesus of Nazareth, but they knew that there was this promised Savior to come, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Salvation was by faith in him as he was promised in the Old Testament ceremonies. For example, the Passover sacrifice, of course, pointed to Christ dying in our place so that God's wrath for our sins would pass over us. The Day of Atonement, again, pointed to God's wrath being turned away, that we would be made at one with the Lord, that our sins would be covered by a sinless substitute. Because Christ fulfills all these things, 
The ceremonial law under the new covenant is less stringent, if you will. Under the old covenant, there were many types and shadows. They had to be stringently followed. If you lay... If the layout of the temple was meant to teach something about the meaning of Christ, and God's people decided just on a whim to change the design that he had given them, well, the lesson that it was supposed to teach would be lost. That's why God cared so much that Nadab and Abihu had brought strange fire before him. They had not obeyed his ceremonial law. In Jesus, you and I see fully revealed all of those things, uh, all that those Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies <coughs> were supposed to point to. They were meant to communicate. And so we don't have such strict or as many regulations, though we have to obey God's commands about worship and how we worship Him. The covenant signs we do have, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, display the covenant of grace to its fullest because it points clearly to the one that we have seen, Jesus Christ. And so the confession says, under the gospel when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which the covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, so a lot less ceremonial things around it. Not the kind of high churchy things that we consider, but very but simplicity of worship. So though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. Why would that be? Well, because we've actually seen the one to whom all those Old Testament ceremonies pointed, and we see the one clearly to whom the New Testament covenant is dispensed through the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments and baptism of the Lord's Supper. Those point clearly to one that we have seen clearly, Jesus Christ. So it's held forth, the confession says, in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Now, we should be careful there. Note that though the, the confession uses the word dispensations, people in modern times use that word quite differently. So a modern dispensationalist would say that there are separations of covenants, that there are two different covenant people of God, that there's earthly Israel and then there's the church. And what we would say is no, there's one covenant and there's a continuity of Israel and the church as one people of God. As we see, for example, in Romans 11, that Believers in Jesus Christ are grafted onto the tree of Israel. They're not a separate tree. God has one people. He has made one covenant of grace with them. Believing earthly Israelites, believing Old Testament Israelites, and believing Christians, whether Jews or Gentiles, are one kingdom, one priesthood, one nation, one chosen people. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 9-10, you, talking to Christians both Jews and Gentiles, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's using Old Testament language that pointed to Israel to talk about Christians. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, he says. 
People were saved in the Old Testament in exactly the same way as they are in the New Covenant era. By God's grace alone, working through faith alone, in the fulfillment of His promises in Jesus Christ alone. Again, an Old Testament believer wouldn't have been able to say his name will be Jesus of Nazareth, but they would have known that this Savior was coming. This is why we would disagree wholeheartedly with those who said that, well, we we can't sing, or we, we need to, to downplay the singing of the Psalms because we want to sing about Jesus. But the Psalms are full of Jesus. Think about that, though. In Christ, you are united with every believer, not just one since his earthly ministry. You're united with Abel and Seth, with Noah and Job, with Abraham and Sarah, with Ruth and David. You're united with Mary and Peter and Barnabas and Paul, Mark and Luke, and on and on. Every believer that you might read about in Scripture or or admire from history. And many that you'll whose names you won't know until the world to come. As we'll see, as we study the person and work of Jesus more closely in the weeks to come, it's all because though you cannot on your own fulfill God's covenant of works, in fact, you're, it's impossible for you now, as we saw before. You can't do it on your own and therefore have everlasting life. God gives you the free gift of Jesus who fulfilled that covenant of works in your place. And that's grace. That's why we call it the covenant of grace. Do you want to know who God is? Look at his covenants. He has condescended to make himself known through these covenants. The covenant of works shows his holy, righteous, and just character. And the covenant of grace shows that he is merciful, that he's gracious, that he's forgiving, that he's patient, that he's self-giving, that he is love itself. Rather than be paralyzed when you see your depravity, flee to Christ. Know that God receives you as righteous because of what Jesus has done. Because he has been perfectly righteous for you. Well, let's pray. Well, faithful Lord, you have kept your covenants with us. We thank you for accepting us as righteous for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that you make us righteous by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would work in us to do that very thing that we might show our gratitude for your grace through Jesus our Savior as we pray in his name. Amen.